I wonder how you would go about starting a worldwide history-changing movement. I think these days it would probably not involve a fairly elaborate marketing strategy, a network of resources ready to deploy at the right time, mobilising specific groups within the society to take particular strategic actions that participants could get involved in and feel like a sense of ownership and a list of goals that you'd want to accomplish, perhaps. Well, this was a different time, different culture, and Jesus took a very different approach. There's probably some similarities at a long bow, but um, a very different approach nonetheless. And to be fair, we get very scant details about how Jesus drew his first followers. The various Gospels describe this calling process in slightly different ways, and it seems unlikely that the actual interactions were as brief as these stories make out. I think there's probably more background information that haven't, hasn't been included here that made it decisive that these disciples would go off and follow Jesus. But bear in mind, people were looking for someone. They were looking for a Messiah, Their culture suggested there would be a Messiah, one would arise. So uh, the story is that every Jewish mother actually treated their son as if their son might be the Messiah. So, you know, (laughs) that could have uh, potentially lovely and problematic consequences, I imagine. But there was no shortage of pretenders, people that arose and said that they were the one. All manner of activists were happy to allow their followers to see them as Messiah, and one of the notable differences that we see in Jesus is that he never claimed that title for himself. He preferred the title Son of Man. There's a really um, funny scene in Monty Python's Life of Brian. I don't know if you're a fan of Monty Python or their movie The Life of Brian, but I think it touches on many truths and exposes many silly falsehoods in religion. And there's a scene where the crowd are hailing Brian as the Messiah. And they say, he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah. He says, I'm not the Messiah. And the crowd goes, that's exactly what the real Messiah would say. (laughs) He's the Messiah. Jesus said, no, I'm the son of man, which is a bit like saying, I am any man or every man. Jesus' approach is remarkable for its complete lack of marketing He told people to be quiet and not tell others about who he was and this kind of thing. There was nothing resembling self-promotion. It seems almost unbelievable in today's culture. But something about Jesus was so compelling nonetheless. Of course, there was his teaching with authority. And this stood in stark contrast to the scribes and Pharisees who could debate both sides of both sides to the point where you weren't clear about anything anymore. Jesus had an approach that was down to earth and straight to the point and it had power and cut through. And of course there were the miracles as well, signs that made you wonder who is this and what's going on, demonstrations of divine power. Mind you, there was no shortage of miracle workers at the time either. Yet rather than being for show, Jesus' miracles always brought greater insight into the nature of God and God's ways. 
More than either of these things, though, miracles or teaching, it seems to have been time spent with the person that brought about a sense of conviction. Because plenty of people heard Jesus teaching. There was no shortage of people that experienced at least seeing him do a miracle. But it is Jesus' closest friends and companions who come to see and understand and develop the conviction that Jesus is the Messiah. And I think about my own faith development because I've heard lots of good preaching and rubbish preaching. Um, I spent five years in full-time theological education, for goodness sake. I've heard many rational arguments and experienced a number of seemingly miraculous encounters with God. But the thing that has formed my deepest convictions about Jesus is simply the time I have spent with him, engaging in the gospel stories and imagining what it would have been like to meet this person, seeking to live in response to the kind of characteristics I see displayed in these stories and being able to talk through my issues with a gracious, accepting and wise person who equips me both to know and to accept myself and in this process makes me want to become more like him. That's where my deepest convictions are formed. So it's a great thing to find Jesus, isn't it? I think it is. Now, the story is always bigger than us. We think we're doing all the work. We are masters of our own life or whatever it might be. Whereas from Philip's perspective, he had been waiting, hoping and looking for a Messiah. From Jesus' point of view, it was a Messiah who'd been looking for disciples. Philip's sense of things is much like his contemporaries, or indeed ours would be if we had been his contemporaries. Philip was captain of his own destiny. He was a Jew who sought to be faithful. He shared the hope of the nation that a Messiah would come, and he was looking for any signs. Of course Philip understood that he had found Jesus. This notion of finding Jesus is so widespread. I remember a couple of years ago, my sister very naughtily bought me a little fridge magnet that said on it, uh, I found Jesus. He was behind the sofa. (laughs) Tongue in cheek. But the reality is that much more is going on around us all the time than we can really realise. Factors that shape our field of view and fashion the elements that draw our attention to them. Philip was a Jew of Bethsaida, There were all manner of currents swirling around him, culturally, politically, theologically, and socially. And it's not easy to be aware of those shaping influences around us because they are for us simply normality. But Jesus knew what he was looking for in a disciple, someone who would recognize true righteousness when he encountered it. And Jesus spotted Philip, just as certainly as he spotted Nathaniel sitting under the fig tree. Jesus found them, even as they understood themselves to be finding Jesus. I look back on my own journey of finding Jesus, and I see my own Jewish formation that gave me a basic sense of God's presence in my life and around me and throughout the world. There was a local youth group that I kind of knew was church-based, but I went there for social reasons to have fun. 
And then at high school, the ISCF group that invited me to the sailing camp, which is the first time I really started to know Jesus, notice Jesus in a more focused way. My mother urged me to go to church, of all things, when I turned 18 because I was getting into the pub scene and she was worried that I would waste my life with drink and dissipation. You see, Jesus had been looking for me long before I started looking for him. And it's Soren Kierkegaard who says, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. And so we live our lives, but it's when we stop and pause and look back that we really get an insight into what's actually going on. Jesus stands beyond our time. He finds us first, and that's how we can find him. Because when we're looking for something, we're always looking for something, right? It's a very particular thing. We have a criteria for our search. That is to say, we're looking for something particular. We're not just looking for anything in general. We know what we want to find. And the Jews of first century Palestine were looking for a very particular Messiah, one who would deliver them from what they perceived to be was oppressing them. And in their minds, the oppressor was Rome. So their instinctual search was for a military, political, revolutionary leader kind of person, which Jesus manifestly was not. And despite what the disciples thought they needed, Jesus knew what they truly needed to be liberated from. And not just them, but every single person in all of history. We need to be set free from our instinctual responses of protecting ourselves at the expense of others. That's an instinct that we have, and we need to be saved from the sense that that's where life is to be found. And so we get this image of angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, a most peculiar kind of idea. The heavens are being opened and angels are ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And we are meant to see in this that the Messiah, this person Jesus, is the one who is the link between God and humanity. This has often been understood simply in terms of Jesus' gracious action in taking on the sin of the world, standing in the place where humanity's violence would fall on him rather than on anyone else, and that is certainly the truth. But I think it's only part of the richness of the meaning of this image that Jesus offers because the other part is much less straightforward for us to accept. And it's that Jesus redefines what life means. He changes around the meaningscape and where life is generally really to be found because we generally understand life to mean something approximating not dying. If you're alive, you're not dead, right? So life is kind of a little bit like survival. But I think the redefinition that Jesus offers indicates that death is an ongoing part of the fullness of life. We must actually die to find the fullness of life. Fullness of eternal life stands in contrast to our innate instincts for survival. I mean, a kind of example of that is the way I used to want everything to be neat and tidy and under control in my world. That's how I felt safe 
in my world. And then children came along in my family. And I'm so glad they did, but they put an end to that sense of control. My version of control was all about what I was comfortable with. And children, at least initially, have no power to pay attention to their parents' needs. They don't care whether you're comfortable with this or uncomfortable with that. They have needs and they cry out for them and you have a responsibility to respond to them. My survival instinct wanted comfortable control, but love for my family, my children, helped me to abandon this priority and I learned to increasingly increasingly give myself to them. If we follow Jesus, we cannot be slaves to those instincts, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it says Jesus in Matthew 16, 25. And this does not mean giving up on your life. It means having full agency in deciding how and for what we will spend ourselves. See, everywhere all around us, we see people who purport to be free. Yet most of us are held captive by one fear or another, formed and influenced by forces we are barely aware of, let alone understand, whether we realise it or not. When Jesus finds us and allows us to discover him as Messiah, then our way of seeing everything starts to shift. Much like the angels in the image, we discover Jesus to be central to our communication with and our access to God. And in effect, Jesus becomes the locus of that which is most important. We become increasingly aware of these shaping forces and we choose to give ourselves to the shaping way of Jesus. That's the call to discipleship. That's what it means to be found by Jesus and to find him as Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you find us, and in finding us, you give us the opportunity to find you. And we thank you that finding you is not just finding what we want, it's finding what we never knew we needed. And so you start to transform us to understand what is more important than even what we've ever understood up to now. And you draw us into life. And we are so grateful for that. May your spirit continue to draw us and give us the courage of faith that enables us to give ourselves to you in every relationship, in all that we do, to the glory of your name. Amen.